นโมทัสสะวะตุอะระหะตุสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมทัสสะวะตุอะระหะตุสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมทัสสะวะตุอะระหะตุสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนามัสเ
in the room I was staying in, I can remember coming across this book by Professor Carl Gustav Jung. And I don't know how much I read of the book, probably not very much. However, I did read something and found out that he was questioning the authority of the church. And that was really new. It was like, it was like, oh, you're allowed to question these things. It's like being given permission to question something that you think is not working. That was significant. He wasn't just aggressively criticizing. He, he was critical, if I remember correctly. However, it was a, an intelligent inquiry and, and somebody who was admired and respected gave me hope you know, when I was feeling hopeless. And, and it wasn't that much long after that, maybe a year, I, I was a brief stint at university in Hamilton and somebody gave me my first Buddhist book. And that was a that was another gift of hope. This was a, a book, The Way of Zen by Alan Watts, which I think for many people of our generation was a significant book. And that was new. That, uh, and the explanation of the, the practice of Zen was again an encouragement to inquire. It wasn't, it wasn't a, a blind form of belief and once again being given permission, not just permission but encouragement, to really receive our own questions and look into them, to respect them, to honour them. It was an inspiration and it was a, a source of hope. And It wasn't long after that that I ended up going to live on my first back-to-the-earth commune, which was you know, just outside the university town that I was living in, Hamilton. It was a place called Gordonton. And again, there was a enthusiasm and newness to this experiment and a group of us, mostly university students or also our sociology professor and his wife and children were part of the commune and, and we had these, these, uh, these great ideas about how we were going to change things in a new way of living and it energised us and, and there was enthusiasm, as I said. However, I do remember that period as also being rather naive. The, the hope can also be quite deluding. I mean, hope can be naive. There can be a naive form of hope. There can be skillful, informed hope, but there can also be very naive hope. And I think our experiments on that occasion, on that commune in Gordonton, was rather naive. I, I, I had converted the, the chicken coop into uh, what I thought was a, a great space to live in and and I was doing my university studies and thought we were doing something amazing. However, the whole thing turned rather sour. And uh, I probably would put that down to excessive idealism. And it took me a very long time before I was able to reflect on how ideals have a function. You can use ideals to orient your life as Ajahn Sumato has taught in the past that ideals are like the stars if you're crossing an ocean and you want to get your bearings the direction to go and you, you look at the stars however you don't expect to reach the stars that would be ridiculous you get your bearings by looking at the stars they help orient your life and 
ideals, our concepts. However, if we cling to those concepts and then we judge the situation we're in against those concepts, that's really unfortunate. And I suspect that's probably what some of us at least were doing on that commune in Gordonton. And reading the, the Whole Earth Catalogue and the, the Greening of America, these, these books that were around at the time and, and the energy that came from them. However, it wasn't particularly grounded. It seems when I reflect back on it now, it was a naive form of idealism. And, and if we're caught up in naive idealism, if we haven't got our feet on the ground, then we can become lost in fantasies. And, and the fantasies, so long as we're left alone in our fantasy world, might be very nice. However, when fantasies conflict with reality, with the people we're living with, we can become super critical and very... Um, even despairing, and, and that commune I remember was a time of considerable discontent and, and disharmony. And one very uncomfortable memory I have of my time there was was uh, the morning that I borrowed a motorbike from one of the girls in the commune and rode into town on foggy morning and didn't have a motorbike license, <laughs> didn't wear a crash helmet. And then uh, the next thing, I, I woke up on my way into surgery. I had um, a motorbike accident, a very serious one, and hit the car coming towards me. It was a very foggy morning, and I guess I was on the wrong side of the road when I hit him. And So that was a difficult lesson. And everything about that comment wasn't difficult and unpleasant, though, because that was also the time when uh, some friends who were living on another commune in northern New South Wales in Australia sent me a book which, which really opened things up. It was Be Here Now by Ram Dass and, and his friends. And this introduced me not just to some wonderful concepts and ideas of an alternative path of spiritual practice and an alternative way of living, this, this was a whole package. This was about taking responsibility for your life. The concept of discipline and faith, not naive faith. This was, this was about aligning your whole being with that which you trusted was worthy. And so spiritual practice, in other words, not just spiritual belief or spiritual ideas but application and so in that book he talked about taking responsibility for your diet and taking up hatha yoga and mantra yoga which it was only a, a few months later that I did just that. I got into macrobiotics and, and took up hatha yoga to recover from the motorbike accident, took up mantra yoga and, and that's, that was a turning point and something that I enormously grateful for those people who who sent me that book and the commune it was a place in northern New South Wales I mentioned it was a, I met it maybe a year maybe two years later I think it was 19, 1972 maybe I think when I was um, living in Australia and I went to stay with these, these people in this commune in northern New South Wales and it was just inland from a little sleepy town called Byron Bay. Um, and um, 
those days, Byron Bay wasn't anything very much. And I remember going there once to use the laundromat to do my laundry. And I, these days, I hear it's where Chris Hemsworth and Nicole Kidman and Zac Efron live or spend time. It's a, a very different place from what it was in 1971 or 72. However, that, that commune I was living at near a village called Mullumbimby uh, was a, a better organised commune, uh, the same sort of enthusiasm and, and uh, interest in, in doing something meaningful with our lives and, and it was a much nicer weather than where I was living in before, that's for sure, and beautiful music, beautiful people to a point. And, but the really relevant thing that I remember of that time was this the um, visit I received from a young American chap I'd met in Sydney, a guy called Danny. He was on his way to sit on a meditation retreat at another nearby town or just outside the town called Nimbin. Nimbin is probably, you, most of you wouldn't have heard of Nimbin, but it's like Australia's version of Woodstock. And, and there was this Theravadan Buddhist monk was teaching a series of retreats there. And, and so Danny was going on retreat and Apparently somebody had dropped out and he was really keen that I went on this retreat. Really keen and lent on me. And I was at a stage of life where I was very anti-religion. I was not interested in taking up religion. If something didn't have a clear, rational explanation, I was not interested. And, and then it turned out to be like one of the best things I've ever done in my whole life. It's, going to this ramshackled house on the outskirts of Nimbin, a bunch of people. The only person I knew was this chap, Danny. And, and all we did was <clears throat> sit and walk meditation most of the day and an occasional talk from the teacher. And, of course, there was a, the breakfast and the midday meal, no food in the evening and no talking. None of that was very appealing to me. However, that was part of the package, and I did. I did have a respect for Buddhism. I did have a feeling of, I want to do this right. There's a conflict. It's a conflict between a conditioned reaction coming out of feeling betrayed by one form of religion and, and conflicting with a sense that there's something very important here in this Buddhist form of religion. I can still, still remember on the third day doing walking meditation up and down the road outside this house and and just suddenly noticing a perspective that it was unfamiliar and this commenting voice in my head made this observation there's just knowing or there's just awareness I can't remember exactly what it was and this commentator then asked, who's aware or who knows? At which point, my mind seemed to drop into another level of calm that somehow seemed to just be there. It wasn't like I made my mind calm or made my mind peaceful. It was just there that the mind dropped into it. And that was new. That was a new level of, of faith and hope. And now it wasn't quite so naive. It was still pretty naive and still pretty deluded. 
However, it felt like it was going in a meaningful direction. So the <clears throat> going on the retreat was not something I was necessarily keen on. And however, it worked. And the faith that the faith that came out of that was not the faith that was associated with clinging to beliefs. This was a faith that was triggered by the discipline of attention or meditation practice. And at that time, I was so inspired. I remember going back to the commune near Malambimbi that I was living on, and, and I don't remember how long. It was weeks or months, but I had I'd built myself this little shelter up on the ridge, sitting and walking meditation, and just in the forest of Australia, experiencing periods of delight that I had no idea were possible before. And it was all legal. It's not talking about imbibing anything or any gimmicks. It was just, just focusing attention. So, lots of delight. Still, I would say, massive amount of delusion. And um, I didn't have the benefit of some of the teachings I received later on. To, I didn't even know how deluded I was. And, which is one of the teachings I'm grateful to Ajahn Chah for. I think it was, I'm pretty sure it was uh, the then Warapanyo, who's now known as Paul Brighter, I think he, he asked Ajahn Chah, he said, you know what greed is, and, and we know what anger is, how do we know what delusion is? And Ajahn Chah's response was, delusion is not knowing when you're angry and greedy. And delusion is a state of not knowing, and, and there's some real difficulty in that. We don't know that we're deluded, that's part of the nature of delusion. And therein lies the importance of having wise spiritual companions, people who know much more than we do, who can drop a few hints, maybe if we're open to it, you know, give a little direction. Um, it was probably only a year, I don't know again how long, but probably only a year after leaving that commune, I think this was, now we're talking about 19... 72, I think, maybe 73, when I was by that time living in a monastery in Bangkok and um, I was a Samanera, I think at the time, a novice. And, and another young American that I had met in Sydney came round to visit. And I knew him in Sydney as Bill Hamilton. Now he was Samanera Dummico. And he was being attendant to this American monk, Ajahn Sumato, who was staying in Watsakit at the time. And, and so Bill Hamilton came around and said, oh, I want to take you around to meet this monk. You've got to meet this monk. He's a really good guy. And, and So I went around to meet Ajahn Sumato, and that was another turning point, and one for which I'm enormously grateful. And my previous experience with discipline had been generally, again, uninformed and usually often forceful and, and met people who had good discipline but weren't necessarily very interesting people to be around. But Ajahn Sumaita was really interesting. Ajahn Sumaita was tremendously interesting and he was tremendously disciplined. And there's, this, there's just one incident that, that I've, I've spoken about before but, uh, but really stuck with me, uh, that how... How we'd had a cup of coffee together, and 
myself and Samanera Damiko and, and then Damiko offered Lumpur Sumato another cup of coffee and just the way Ajahn Sumato said no that's enough it wasn't neurotic denial of the pleasure of another cup of coffee it was just no and being able to exercise dis- discipline and have the sort of sense of humour that Ajahn Sumato had and has was new that also fed into my experience of increasing better informed faith and discipline. And then of course the the great privilege and benefit of being able to live with the teachers I lived with in Thailand, Ajahn Tate and Ajahn Chah and and the experience of time spent in their company and One evening, when Ajahn Chah was beginning his Dhamma talk, it was in, I think it was probably a one pra, a moon night, and, and all the, the bhikkhus were there, and the, the matches, and, the, and the, the lay people, big hall of lay people were there. And, and as I remember, he started his Dhamma talk saying something like, If you're suffering, don't feel bad about it, everybody suffers. At some stage, and I don't know if it was just then, but at some stage I was beginning to learn that suffering is not an indictment against us. Somehow I had internalized this view, this idea that if you're suffering you're failing. The the, The kind of story, you're supposed to be happy all the time. And if you're suffering, you're unhappy, you're failing. Well, that's not what Ajahn Chah was teaching. It's not what the Buddha was teaching. One of the, one of the, the brilliant and most mm, teachings by the Buddha that I appreciate most is the emphasis that suffering is a message. Yes, the, the Buddha did allude to his awakening on a number of occasions. However, what he emphasized over and over again was that there is this experience of suffering. We're all having this experience of suffering. And there are skills that we need to be developing so as to be able to get this message. We all feel disappointed from time to time. We all feel sad from time to time. We all feel indignant from time to time. We all feel confused and afraid from time to time. What do we do with it? Are we able to meet ourselves there in that experience of limited being? Can we really meet ourselves in that experience of disappointment? Or do we distract ourselves? Certainly in my case, I've been emphasizing distracting myself, including distracting myself with remembering the, the beautiful, pleasant experiences that I had when I first started meditating. Up there in the, amongst the blue gums and the lantana of the forest of northern New South Wales. and I remember those beautiful periods of meditation there and I was struggling to get back to them and I couldn't get back to them. I was having all sorts of suffering, all sorts of confusion, all sorts of disappointment, physical and mental. And and rather than paying attention to it, I was distracting myself by remembering those beautiful moments and trying to get back to them. Thankfully, Ajahn Chah's insistence was to pay attention to dukkha. And his experience, his, his example, 
Whereas that, that non-judgmental appreciation of life. You go to talk to him about the struggles you're having. He, he didn't criticize you for being hopeless. He, he met you there and maybe talked about his struggles, which he often did because he had many. So that lesson of beginning to learn how to not judge suffering as an indicator of our lack of self-worth, but rather as the signpost. That's the message. And then all the, all the teachings of the Buddha and the, and the great beings who followed encouraging us and cultivating skillful means for how to read the message until we get the message, you know, whether, it's, whether it's patient endurance and learning to understand the difference between patient endurance and bitter endurance. Sometimes people read the Buddha's teachings on patient endurance and then they, they grit their teeth and I'm going to put up this because it's supposed to be good for me. And that, that's, that's bitter endurance. That's not the same thing. Patient endurance needs to be very gentle, willing, a willing bearing with things that feel unbearable. Questioning. Sometimes we, our faith has been challenged and and we're not feeling confident and inspired and uplifted like we perhaps were when we started out in practice and remember the pleasure of believing that we're onto a good wicket here, this Buddhism is best and, and we have faith in the Buddha's teachings and, and willfully concentrating our attention and break through to some pleasant experience when in fact maybe what's called for is a skillful interest, a skillful quality of interest in the, the actuality of the dukkha, the disappointment. What is the feeling of disappointment? And if we turn to disappointment, for instance, and, and somehow we find it, it's like overwhelming, what does that mean? Or sadness, we turn to a moment of sadness and we find overwhelmed. What does that mean? It doesn't mean to say that we can't handle it, we're too weak or we're too stupid or we're practicing wrong. What it may well mean is that actually we've got a big backlog of denied disappointment, of denied sadness. Because the world teaches us to distract ourselves and buy more stuff and go on more holidays and talk more and deny more. And so once we turn to look at it, say, what is the reality of this disappointment? And we habitually contract around it, resist it, try to push it away, try to get over it. Go and read a book, go and read a sutta about what the Buddha said about um, dealing with dukkha, and then maybe we get some hints and that's useful. Does that really resolve it? Um, often not. Often what's called for is the more humble, willing, willingness to bear with this experience of disappointment, but with a quality of interest, not a quality of judgment. It's disappointment in the, my guts feels like this, in my heart, in my shoulders, in my brow. Do we, do we tense? Do we resist? when we feel that about life which is disagreeable or are we able to be there for it 
Some people don't have a big backlog and they just breathe through and develop increasing clarity and calm and understanding. Others don't. We need to meet ourselves where we're at. And certainly for myself, I need a lot of support, still do need a lot of support. When these moments of limitation arise, what's important is the quality of interest and whether or not we're still judging ourselves for experiencing suffering. So over the years, many times since those periods of having the good fortune to live with Ajahn Tate and Ajahn Chah in Thailand, and there have been many occasions when situations I've been put in which I found intensely challenging. I was only, I think I'd been a monk for seven years before Ajahn Sumato just sent me off down to Devon. Just off you go, go and start a monastery in Devon. Seven years I've been a monk and nowhere near was I ready. But those were very much pioneer days and, and on many occasions feeling intensely challenged. However, I count myself fortunate to have had a very strong desire to succeed, to succeed at meeting the task. This was a worthwhile task, establishing monasteries in this culture at this time is something worthwhile, it's something I want to do. And so I really wanted to succeed. And somewhere along the line, I started to learn that really wanting to succeed doesn't have to be a problem. Many people, even after years of practice, they still make wanting into a problem. They think there's something wrong with wanting to succeed. They turn equanimity into a holy cow and worship equanimity as if they're not supposed to have any feelings. Little by little, fortunately, I, I was learning that it's possible to really want, to intensely want to succeed. However, with the refuge in the Buddha, with a refuge in the Buddha, which I think of as selfless just knowing awareness, with that refuge, it's possible to intensely want to succeed without being completely lost in wanting. And that's an important lesson. A very important lesson. So that's, that's something. I wouldn't say it's something that I've learnt. I would say it's something that I'm learning. So if I do look back now and say, well, what have I learnt in 70 years? I'm, I'm not sure. I must have learnt some things. However, I don't really know what to say about that. What I do feel I can say is that I'm learning that a suitable goal, a really relevant goal in practice, a relevant goal in life, is not about trying to become wise or trying to become enlightened. Rather, it's developing those skills, that quality of presence whereby we can be more honest about our foolishness, about our limitations. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Mm-hmm.